What is up, everyone? Ron Ray here. Welcome to the War Room. Today's guest is John Lyle, and he has a cool book out called The Dirty Tricks Department, Stanley Lovell, the OSS, and the Masterminds of World War II Secret Warfare. That is a mouthful for you, boy. But regardless, I got through it. We talk about bat bombs, blowing foxes, cyanide pills, all kinds of cool stuff in this interview. If you have a moment, drop a five-star review wherever you may be. We'd really, really, really appreciate it. Or if you're on YouTube, give us a thumbs up. And with that, let's get to the show. John, welcome to the War Room. Thank you very much for having me. I'm excited to talk about this. Okay. The Dirty Tricks Department. All right. And it's got a cool looking silencer. We've got all kinds of cool stuff going on here. I would ask why you wrote this book, but it seems to be self-evident. But but give me give me the background here. Yeah. You know, the, the topic of this book is really exciting. So that's what got me into it. Um, I had been writing my dissertation in grad school on a topic tangentially related. I was writing about a group of scientists in the Cold War and their connections to the intelligence community. And I kept coming across um, descriptions of projects that some scientists had done during World War II that really seemed incredible. Bat bombs and glowing foxes and silenced weapons and all kinds of stuff. And after seeing these descriptions, it eventually occurred to me that all of them seemed to have originated from a similar kind of place. There was a group of the OSS, the Office of Strategic Services, which is the precursor to the CIA, during World War II. One of its branches was responsible for many of these programs. And so when I realized that all of these kind of crazy schemes and devices were connected, I thought, well, I've got to write a book about that. (laughs) So that's kind of how I got interested. Did you say bat bombs and glowing foxes? (laughs) Yes, there's a lot of strange animal things that are going on in this book. Bat bombs are this idea that the United States would strap incendiary devices to bats, release them over Japan. The bats would fly into buildings and warehouses of the Japanese and explode after a time delay. And the incendiaries would catch those on fire and you could burn down a city without having to waste a bunch of bombs that might not even hit their targets. So that was this bat bomb idea that was experimented with by the OSS during World War II. Um, It never actually went into the field, but during experiments... A couple of the bats kind of escaped and went into a control tower in a warehouse and actually blew up and burned them down. So it seemed to have worked a little bit, but actually not not in Japan. So we strap bombs to bats, like I'm making sure I'm like a literal bat. And we thought, hey, we're going to deploy a herd or a flock or whatever, a bunch of a gaggle, whatever a bunch of bats are. (laughs) And we're going to send them to Japan somehow. And they're going to fly into things and blow up. I mean, that was the idea. <laughs> it, it sounds it sounds like something out of a sci-fi movie or like a James Bond movie. Like it's so bizarre. It doesn't. And it, it's so strange that it doesn't seem like this should have gone as far as it actually did. I mean, this got, like I said, into the experimental phases where people were creating these incendiaries and catching bats and putting them together and doing test runs. Um, one of the main reasons this actually got so far is that the guy who came up with this idea, he's a dentist named Little Adams. He was kind of a personal friend of Eleanor Roosevelt. And so he had an end 
in with some pretty high people in authority. So he gave his proposal for the bat bomb to Eleanor Roosevelt. She gave it to her husband, President Franklin Roosevelt, and he gave it to William Donovan, the head of the OSS, and basically said, this guy's not a nut. Kind of listen to what he has to say. And so William Donovan of the OSS gave it to his, who he called Professor Moriarty, Stanley Lovell, who's the guy that was in charge of running many of these kind of interesting schemes and projects in creating these weapons. Okay. I'm still, I'm still shook over the bat bomb, but you also said glowing foxes. Okay. What, I mean, I've heard of tying the foxtails together and stuff like that, but glowing foxes, what's going on there? Yeah, Glowing Foxes. This was an operation called Operation Fantasia. Again, part of the OSS research and development branch that Stanley Lovell was in charge of. The idea behind this kind of goes, it it plays into some ideas within the Shinto religion, this Japanese religion. Um, Within Shintoism, there seems to be this idea that um, these kind of spirit animal beings like glowing foxes, they they can represent on occasion portents of doom. So these might be bad omens. So if you see kind of a spirit being, this could be a bad omen. That's something you know bad is going to happen in the future. The idea that the OSS had with this is that what if it could release glowing foxes in Japan and make them think that they were seeing these bad omens, then the Japanese might think that, oh, this must mean something's bad bad is going to happen to us in this war. We might as well give up now before that bad thing eventually does happen. Um, so it's, again, one of these kind of wacky ideas. Um, but this went actually pretty far into production. Bats were acquired. Um, the OSS also acquired glowing radioactive paint from the American Radiation uh, Radium Corporation. They applied this paint to these foxes, and um, these foxes were given several test runs. About 30 foxes were released into a, a park by in around Washington, D.C. called Rock Creek Park. These foxes were released, painted with this paint, just to see how people would react. Would people really be scared? And there were reports kind of in the next day's newspaper saying that people fled the scene screaming, you know. So the idea was that, well, if Americans were really scared of these foxes, just imagine how more scared the Japanese are going to be. There were a couple more experiments with these glowing foxes. Several were taken by ship into the Chesapeake Bay, painted with glowing paint, and thrown overboard. Because the idea was that, well, how are we going to get these foxes into Japan? They're going to have to swim. So we're going to have to, you know, see if these foxes can swim to the shore and then start scaring the Japanese. So they were towed out to Chesapeake Bay, thrown into the water. They actually made it to shore. So foxes can, it turns out, swim. But by the time they had reached the shore, most of the paint had washed off. So it kind of rendered it ineffective anyway. (laughs) Yeah, that was my next question, which was, you know, bat bombs and going foxes. How do you get them to Japan? We just released or recorded. It's not out yet, I guess, but an episode on uh, World War II in 1945 and just some of the strategy about taking islands and, and just, you know, how you had to get certain islands to reach Japan. And so it's not as if. You know, 1943, getting to Japan was even possible mm-hmm. uh, yeah. unless you had some kind of crazy secret covert mission that maybe you're going to explain but it sounds like they didn't have that yeah Um, again yeah the idea is to release them by shore but when that actually turned out everyone quickly realized this is really impractical it's not that they gave up operation fantasia instead they started brainstorming other ideas so another idea was that well instead of actually releasing foxes maybe we can release like balloons that'll float over there and look like foxes and then we can attach you know some maybe a taxidermied fox to it that's you know, uh, covered in this paint to scare them. So there are a lot of strange ideas, offshoots from this original plan too. Yeah. 
And I don't know if you know this answer. I'm curious, um, what weaponry would the Japanese had? Because I, I, listen, I'm in Texas. I'm from Louisiana originally. We may or may not have weapons in the house. Okay. <laughs> so, but I do have a, a uh, seven-year-old and about to be four-year-old. I have two that are older than that, that are 13 and 11. But, and, and we can hear some howls in the back, you know, stuff like that. Never seen anything glowing. Mm-hmm. But if one glowing came out, those alleged weapons that we may or may not possess might be loaded, strapped, and ready to unload. <laughs> However, the kids would be traumatized by seeing a green or red or pink, whatever, glowing box running through the yard. Mm-hmm. Um, so w- when they got there, was there a fear that I-, I can definitely see the panic version, but could the, would it, I would assume the Japanese would have tried to kill them pretty quickly as well and then discovered it was paint and all that. So it yeah, seems I, I would assume so, but I think that's thinking a l- further than maybe these guys were thinking. <laughs> you know, you're, you're thinking out the details, whereas they're thinking, well, we're in wartime and desperate times call for desperate measures. This might not work. The Japanese, yeah, they might catch these boxes, but why not throw something against the wall and see what sticks? Let's just go for it. And, you know, what's the worst that can happen? They kill a couple of foxes. OK. Listen, for whoever hires for these crazy positions, I'm happy to be employed for to throw ideas at the wall. So, you know, if, <laughs> if you're looking for more bat bomb and glowing foxes ideas, I'm happy to mm-hmm. just rend- render services. Um, OK, so let, let's do go back to that era, though. Um, you know, when you think about you know spy technology and whatnot, it's always a question of, you know, how much is James Bond or Mission Impossible or whoever the other ones are real versus how much this technology is is just kind of made up. And I think we've gotten a little better of determining it today. But but back in this period, you know, what kind of technology did they have that was classified top secret? Because a bat bomb on some level is kind of high tech, strapping a bomb to a bat, but also it's kind of rudimentary with a bat. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. Probably the most useful of the technologies that are developed by this R&D branch of the OSS, led by Stanley Lovell, are probably the ones that deal with explosives. So there are a bunch of different explosives, especially to derail trains. This was really useful for resistance forces in France, kind of countering the German Germans who were invading there. Um, a couple of these devices, one was called the Mole. The Mole was a device that was developed by this branch, and... It was light sensitive, so it had an explosive in it, and it could detect a sudden shift from light to dark. So say a train, say say a saboteur attaches it to a train, and the train then goes into a tunnel on its journey. Well, the, the mole is going to recognize that you've just gone from daylight to this tunnel very suddenly, and that's going to activate it, and so it's going to detonate. Now, this is great for the OSS and these resistance forces because not only does it have the potential to derail the train, but it also is going to plug up this tunnel so that no other German trains are going to be able to go through it. So th- that was one of one useful technology uh, that comes out of this R&D branch is the mole. There are several other explosive technologies that prove very useful for the especially French resistance. Um, besides the mole, there's something like the firefly. This is a packet of kind of explosive material that you could drop into a, an engine surreptitiously, and after a while, it would destroy the engine. You could do the same thing with what was called turtle eggs. Turtle eggs was this packet of abrasive material, and you could put it in kind of the oil intake pipe of an engine, and after a while, the the material would kind of get into the oil, and it would just completely ruin the engine. And, uh, so th- these are some of the actually pretty useful things that were used by the resistance. The explosives were particularly useful. And is this, you mentioned earlier, kind of throwing stuff off the wall. 
obviously that's going to be part of all of these things. But how much of this is stealing other countries' technology, um, modifying it? How much of it is this bringing in great scientists and uh, people or inventors? What's kind of the mix here to get to these ideas? Mm-hmm. It's a little bit of everything. For sharing with other countries, the the OSS, this precursor to the CIA during World War II, it had a close collaboration with the British SOE. That stands for Special Operations Executive. That's kind of the the British analog to the OSS going on at the time. The British SOE is developing a lot of devices on its own. It's really, um, in, in fact, Stanley Lovell, when he's put in charge of this R&D branch, he goes to England to try to learn from the SOE and get some of their techniques. And one of the things that they share with the OSS are things like uh, different kinds of pills that undercover agents could use. So uh, w- the most common or popular or well-known of these pills is called the L pill, which stands for lethal pill. This is basically a cyanide pill that if an agent is caught and they don't want to be interrogated and give up secret information, they can take this cyanide pill and kill themselves. So the the uh, OSS and the SOE had a pretty close collaboration, but it is also the case that Stanley Lovell is hiring a bunch of other kind of expert scientists to develop some of these weapons just for the OSS for himself. For instance, Louis Pfizer is a famous chemist who invented napalm. He does this before World War II. He's a professor at Harvard. In fact, some of his first napalm experiments had been done on the soccer fields at Harvard, and he eventually got into trouble for it, not because he was detonating this napalm, but because this drill instructor was upset because Pfizer was using his fields and he needed it for drill instruction. So Stanley Lovell pretty quickly hires Lewis Pfizer, and he's the scientist who develops most of the incendiaries for the OSS. So like for those bat bombs, they have these napalm incendiaries attached to them that blow up and catch fire. Pfizer develops those, and there's all, all, all kinds of other incendiaries that he develops. So it's a little combination of where these came from. It's collaborating with especially the British, but also hiring scientists just to invent this stuff. How does one deploy napalm? In the soccer field of Harvard <laughs> uh, well, <laughs> multiple times without getting in trouble. Yeah, um, that's a good question. <laughs> I, I think the only answer is that, well, I guess it was a different time and, you know, it wasn't <laughs> looked on as we certainly would look on it today. But, yeah, he had these napalm bombs and he would, ex- I mean, there are pictures and, you know, books you can find of him detonating these on Harvard, Harvard soccer field with the stadium in the, in the background right on campus. <laughs> wow. That's wild. That is wild. Okay, so you mentioned you mentioned some names earlier. Let's kind of go back to, mm-hmm. to some of the people involved with this process. So maybe give us kind of the, the the founding of the OSS, who kind of spearheaded that from the political side, and then who actually spearheaded it from like on the boots ground side. Yeah, definitely. The, uh, before World War II, in the 1930s, there had been a big push for from certain individuals for the United States to have a coordinated kind of central intelligence organization. Um, so the the main person who's spearheading this is a World War One war hero who had you know uh, been shot in the leg during World War One. He got the Medal of Honor. He became a lawyer afterward. His name is William Donovan. He's going to become the head of the OSS. He was actually pretty tight with President Franklin Roosevelt. So before World War II, Donovan is really encouraging Roosevelt to create a centralized intelligence organization that coordinates the 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 United States's intelligence from abroad. Before the OSS, you had a bunch of separate intelligence organizations from army intelligence, naval intelligence, 
Donovan's idea or what he wants Roosevelt to do is have a centralized place where all this intelligence goes and it's able to be analyzed so that the president can president can have the most accurate and up-to-date information possible from a, a trusted source. So right before the United States gets involved in World War II, Roosevelt decides to create this organization. It's originally called the, the COI or Coordinator of Information, but that eventually morphs into the OSS, the Office of Strategic Services, and he appoints William Donovan to be the head of the OSS. So that's kind of the broad origins of this. And what was the initial objective objective of the OSS? How did it change? Mm -hmm. I'm sure bat bombs weren't day one, but maybe they were. <laughs> no, bat bombs weren't day one. Uh, the The original objectives are we need to gather intelligence abroad. So one of the things that the OSS is going to need to do is to develop contacts abroad, but also to send potentially spies abroad to gather information. If you've gathered intelligence abroad, you also need someone back home to analyze that. So they're developed what's called the research and analysis branch. They analyze the information from abroad. Another initial goal of the OSS is to spread propaganda and disinformation. They were involved in several disinformation campaigns, propaganda campaigns, and then eventually um, Donovan created what I focus on in this book, the R&D branch, the research and development branch, which, which is in charge of really equipping undercover agents, saboteurs, spies with all of the weapons, documents, disguises that they might need in the field on their undercover missions. Yeah, and even the glowing fox is is purely propaganda, right? Because it, it sounds like a weird tool, but it's not blowing up. It's not doing it. It's a, it's a glowing fox to... Yeah, you, you could think of it almost, yeah, as like a disinformation campaign. We're trying to trick the Japanese into thinking that this spirit is a bad omen and wanting them to change their minds and drop their weapons. So there is some like a disinformation element to this whole operation. Mm. Okay. And so the spies back then, you, you mentioned this, this guy's R&D branch. Um, you know, how are they recruiting spies? Is it kind of the same process today? Was it different? Um how would they go about, you know, getting people to come and to try? Uh, they had to try this stuff, obviously, but to be willing to go and to be a spy, was there um, education qualifications, military background? What were they looking for? Yeah, for the spies themselves and in saboteurs as well, like people who are working, especially with the French Resistance, um, the OSS tended to hire either foreigners. You know, from, let's say, France, who spoke the language and knew the region because they already had a lot of intelligence about this place or people who would speak those languages. You had to if you were going to be a spy, you had to be able to blend in with your immediate surroundings. So you had to have, you know, be able to speak a language without an accent and all that kind of stuff. Um, so as far as recruiting people, one of the th things, well, I should start with saying that the OSS was kind of mocked by several military organizations like the Army, Navy, um, because the OSS was, its nickname was Oh So Social instead of Office of Strategic Services, OSS Oh So Social, because it hired a lot of kind of Ivy League graduates who some of them didn't necessarily want to be deployed in the military. So if you wanted to avoid being deployed abroad, you might join the OSS and you could be an analyst and be stationed in the United States. So you wouldn't be kind of on the front. Um, so that nickname kind of developed with the OSS. Um, in, in fact, a kind of common phrase that was used to describe some of the recruits who were within the OSS and later the CIA was pale, male, and the Yale. So you have these, you know, like Ivy League graduates who are joining. Um, but as far as when these recruits join the OSS, 
they have to go to a training camp, basically. Um, what's today known as the Congressional Country Club in Maryland. This, you know, it's a golf course, a famous, nice golf course. Many presidents have been members of the Congressional Country Club. During World War II, the OSS requisitioned this piece of land and they turned it into a training ground for all the recruits. So instead of a driving range, they had a rifle range. Instead of, you know, where the where the ponds of stray golf balls used to be, this now turned into ponds where you could do explosive demonstrations. And there was a laboratory in the basement of the clubhouse that became known as the Maryland Research Laboratory. And this is where the R&D branch did a lot of its experiments and invented a lot of its weapons. As part of this training for these recruits, one thing that many of them are required to do after they've received their training is prove their skills. Before they're going to be deployed abroad as a spy or a saboteur, you actually have to know what they're talking about or make sure they know what they're talking about. And so one way to do this is that the OSS told these recruits, okay, you're going to go to a defense plant somewhere in the United States. You're going to steal classified information and you're going to bring it back to us. And if you're able to do it without getting arrested, you pass. So that was their training exam for many of these recruits. I've always wondered about that being recruited by the CIA or, or someone and uh, not that they would ever call me, but if they did, the biggest fear would be like, Hey, we want you to go do this mission, but don't worry. You're doing it for us, but it's against us, but it's all cool. And then getting busted and going down like as the fall man, <laughs> um, for some illegal operation. So if listen, you gotta be kind of brave and crazy to go break into a U.S. company on order from the U S and, if you get caught, assume they're going to bail you out. I mean, yeah, the, the FBI tended to not like the OSS because they, you know, sometimes they would catch these agents, but the OSS would then bail them out. And, you know, they would get into organizational rivalries. Like, why are you performing operations in the U.S.? Your domain is supposed to be abroad. You shouldn't be doing this. We're the FBI and this is our domain. Don't mess with the U.S. stuff. So there was a lot of organizational rivalry throughout all these, you know, OSS, FBI, all kinds of stuff. Okay, so a title like Professor Moriarty, obviously, I'm guessing, comes from Sherlock Holmes. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, does Stanley live up to the moniker? Um, a little bit. So I'll kind of explain the origins of this nickname he receives at the OSS. He's recruited by William Donovan, again, to become the head of this R&D branch of the OSS. And uh, when Donovan recruits him, he tells Lovell, I want you to be the Professor Moriarty of this organization. It's your job to invent all the deadly devices and all this stuff. And Stanley Lovell is initially reluctant to even join the OSS because, you know, he, his background is in science and he thinks that he kind of has an, a Hippocratic obligation to do good. I should use my the scientific knowledge that I have. He's a chemist to help the world, not to destroy the world or kill people. So he has these internal kind of pangs of conscience. Throughout the war, though, that, you know, one of the main arcs of my book is seeing how this changes. Whenever he's faced with kind of the devastating reality of war, he really does start to change his mind and not only begins to create some of these deadly weapons, he begins to advocate for what we would today call like weapons of mass destruction. He begins advocating for the U.S. to use biological weapons, chemical weapons. He's in favor of using the atomic bomb on Japan. Um, so again, one of the main arcs of this story is seeing Lovell's moral development from someone who's reluctant to get involved with this to someone who's advocating for the United States to use anything possible to end the war as soon as possible and potentially save more American lives. From his perspective, or I guess your perspective of his perspective, maybe what, mm -hmm. what pushed him? What was the thing that was pushing him in that direction? 
Well, part of it is a, a rational, um, a, a rational cycle that he kind of goes through, that he thinks through. So it would be when he's thinking about biological weapons, he realizes that well, if you're stabbed with a bayonet, you know, you're it's probably going to get infected, and you're probably going to die of some you know, infection anyway. So Lovell is saying, if we use biological weapons, we can kill these people, say, from the infection, and we can save them the bayonet wound. You know, so he thinks this is almost a moral alternative. Now, he doesn't really engage with the counter arguments about, well, what if this spreads to a civilian population, which a bayonet probably isn't going to do? You know, so he doesn't really engage with that, but he is trying to think through this somewhat rationally. Another way he another thing that convinces him to start developing this way is that well it's a personal argument his only son richard is on a boat midway across the pacific waiting to engage in an invasion of japan the sooner that the war ends the less chance that stanley level's own son is going to probably die when he's invading japan so stanley level wants the war to end as soon as possible and if that means deploying biological weapons well that that means that we'll end the war and potentially save his son's life in addition to all these other americans yeah it's 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 always scary when you get behind the curtain and oftentimes we romanticize um decisions or or things that have happened and sometimes it's very pragmatic very practical like i don't mm-hmm. want my son to die so therefore i'm willing to push the envelope obviously i have a son i could understand a father's desire to protect his son. Mm-hmm. Um, but that does get to the the interesting thing about dealing with secret agencies and propaganda and spies is that it, it, it becomes hard in the period you're in to understand how much of what they're saying is true, how much of what they're saying is deceptive, you know, what what's going on behind the scenes. And so when you're going back as a historian reading through this stuff, how hard is it for you to decipher what do they really believe versus what was kind of them trying to manipulate to get what they're trying to achieve? Um, it, it can be it can be pretty hard. I mean, it can be pretty hard, especially with someone like Stanley Lovell. After the war, he's really proud of his work. You know, he thinks he really did a good service to the country, helping to develop, especially these weapons, documents, disguises that undercover agents use that he thinks kind of speeds up the end of the war because it contributes to the French resistance against the Germans and all this stuff. And so he wrote a memoir And in the memoir, he tends to exaggerate uh, quite a few things. (laughs) So when I'm in the archives and I'm looking through material, I'm often kind of checking them against what he's saying and seeing if it matches up. In a lot of cases, I was actually pleasantly surprised that I was able to corroborate a lot of the things he says, which I thought initially were exaggerations. But in the archives, there's the, the minutes of the meeting in which he's saying exactly what he mentions in his book. There are a couple occasions, though, where... He says some things that I just could not corroborate in the archives, or maybe the chronology didn't quite line up. And so I had to either not include that in the book or, well, basically just not include it if I didn't think it happened. So, yeah, there are several instances where that happens. There was one really interesting occasion, though, where I had read Lovell's uh, memoir, and in it, he talks about a meeting at the National Academy of Sciences, where they were talking about biological warfare. So it was this a group of scientists who were discussing different ways that the United States might eventually engage in biological warfare. And I thought, well, did this meeting happen or not? Did Lovell just include this because it was a neat story? And I had realized that I'd actually gone to the National Academy of Sciences to do some research on my dissertation, kind of unrelated to this, but I had taken a lot of pictures of documents. 
And so just out of curiosity, I started going through my documents and lo and behold, I found the exact meeting transcript that had the minutes of what everyone was saying for the exact meeting that Lovell was talking about in his book. So I can actually corroborate. It's right there. I actually have a picture of it in my own archives. So that was really fortuitous. <laughs> okay. Well, this, this is a podcast. It's not a book. So the, the threshold for truth is way, way lower. Is there, <laughs> is there one story that you, you're looking at? And you go, man, I wish I could have figured this out, but I couldn't have. Um, Yes, yes. So the main one, which I, I talk about this at the end of the book, saying using it as an example of something that um, I couldn't corroborate. So, you know, I didn't include it in the specific ch- chapter that it would have gone on. I kind of use it as an example of where I think Lovell probably exaggerated in his memoir. The operation is called Operation Capricious. This was a biological warfare, warfare campaign that Stanley Lovell wanted to implement. And the idea was that Again, this gets a little crazy. He wanted to lace goat droppings, goat dung, with a disease called tularemia. And his idea was that there are these German troops in Morocco, and we can drop these goat droppings from the sky from airplanes. It will land among these troops, and then flies will come pick up the tularemia from, from the dung, and they will spread it among the German soldiers. So it was a way to spread this biological disease without the Germans really knowing who had started it. Because if these flies are just spreading this disease, they don't know that the United States dropped this goat dung from the sky. So this was Lovell's idea of one biological warfare campaign, Operation Capricious. But again, I couldn't really find any corroborating documents in the archives to support much about this and the timeline kind of seemed a little off so i didn't really include it um I, I i hope someone does find some documents that corroborate this but otherwise i'm just relying on stanley level's memoir and you know i i know he's prone to exaggerate so i had to be a little more skeptical of it well it could be something that he considered but didn't get very far as well right absolutely just, yeah, yeah. So it could just be, yeah. Okay, i get what you're saying um just out of curiosity what was the treatment for that particular disease? Disease is something that was easily easily treatable, or was it like mass extinction killer type that uh, virus? No, I think it's it's a survivable disease. Um, I don't know about treatment at that time. What it would have been, um, I'm, I'm not quite sure. I'm not quite sure. It's a it's it's not necessarily a deadly disease. It can be, but it not necessarily. So I, I don't know how you treat it though, hmm. or that how would they? I mean, this. The law of unintended consequences. I don't know if that law existed in their minds back then, but you, you you drop goat dung, hoping that flies pick it up. You can't, you can't, it's like the bats. You can't control the flies. Once they start moving around, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. they're going to yeah, spread the, it. And I don't, I don't know once it gets to a human, how it's spread from human to human, but it just seems that you've created this, this process that you don't know where it's going to stop at. Unless yeah, the Germans and- were so far away at this point from the Americans that they weren't concerned about the cross-contamination, but even the civilians in the area would have been impacted. Stanley Lovell gets a lot of pushback for his advocacy of biological and chemical warfare. One of the, one of the main people who's kind of President Roosevelt's unofficial science advisor at this time, he's in charge of coordinating kind of scientific research in the United States, like the Manhattan Project and all that stuff. His name is Vannevar Bush. And Vannevar Bush really pushed back against Stanley Lovell doing any of this. He basically told Stanley Lovell, you need to stop experimenting and researching into this stuff. Um, so he, he, there is actually quite a, quite a lot of pushback within the government telling Stanley Lovell to stop you know, what he's doing. Um, Stanley Lovell, nevertheless, still he doesn't quite listen and still experiments with a lot of this stuff, including poisons, which he's told, don't, you know, don't look into these poisons too much. But, you know, his scientists in the R&D branch still do several experiments related to, you know, poisoning crops or anything like that. 
who were some of the other players in the R&D branch? Yeah, one of the again, one of the main scientists who's working on this is Louis Pfizer, the guy who invented napalm, and he's in charge of uh, in uh, developing those incendiary devices. One of the other guys who's in charge of he's in charge of many of the weapons that don't involve incendiaries. His name is Harris Chadwell. He's another chemist. Many of these guys are chemists. He actually had been a former roommate of Louis Pfizer. So Louis Pfizer joined. Stanley Lovell had recruited Harris Chadwell first to kind of lead this division that's in charge of some of these weapons. And Harris Chadwell happened to know Louis Pfizer. And so he recommended him to join the R&D branch. So, you know, all these guys are kind of connected in some way. There, another famous scientist who's involved in this is George Kistiakowsky. He later becomes the science advisor to President Eisenhower. But during World War II, he's working on some of these projects. And one of the things he helps develop is called Aunt Jemima. Aunt Jemima is this pancake mix. It's just flour, but mixed within it is explosives. So the idea was that you would be able to sneak it into in enemy territory very easily because it just it looks like pancake mix. So who's going to stop you at the border, you know, when you're trying to get into some territory instead of bringing in a bunch of napalm or something you just bring in pancake mix and you'll you're more likely to get it to wherever it's going so he helps develop the recipe for this aunt jemima pancake mix wow how much was the fear of the germans building an atomic bomb driving some of this motivation that that drives some motivation to do a few things that the r&d branch is involved in but not necessarily it, that's not its main motivation for many of these weapons. The 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 one place where that does play a big role is that the R&D branch, especially Stanley Lovell, is helping to advise the OSS on how to deal with German scientists. So the main German scientists, physicists at this time, who if the if the Germans have an atomic bomb project, this is the guy that everyone knew is probably going to lead it is Werner Heisenberg. He's kind of the most prominent, the most respected the most knowledgeable. So if anyone's going to lead the German atomic bomb project, it's going to be Werner Heisenberg. The OSS knows this. And in fact, William Donovan hires a guy named Mo Berg, a former baseball player, to go out and assassinate Werner Heisenberg. <laughs> so Stanley Lovell is involved in advising Mo Berg on some of the stuff that he's doing. Um, Donovan also hires another guy to go and kidnap Werner Heisberg. When that doesn't work, he hires Mo Berg to potentially assassinate him. Mo Berg eventually goes under the OSS to Switzerland, where Werner Heisenberg is giving a lecture. And his task is to sit in the lecture. And if it seems like he knows much about atomic bombs or if he's working on anything related to that, he's going to pull out a pistol and assassinate Warner Heisenberg right there. But at the end of the lecture, Mo Berg had been listening and it what he was lecturing on wasn't even related to atomic bombs. And it didn't seem like he you know, either knew much about a German project or anything like that. So Mo, Mo Berg decides he's not going to assassinate him. And Warner Heisenberg lived you know, after the war. So he wasn't assassinated. But that's the main way that the OSS involved, is involved in a potential German atomic bomb project. Now, wasn't Heisenberg tied up with Operation Paperclip or not? Well, Operation Paperclip is mostly after the war. So right. Paperclip, yeah, is the idea that the United States is going to really requisition this German knowledge after the war by capturing German technicians, scientists, engineers, and bringing them to the United States and trying to get their knowledge about how they create, you know, V2 rockets and chemical weapons and all kinds of stuff. Werner Heisenberg is captured... It's it's a little bit different project. He, he's captured in what's called Project Epsilon, Operation Epsilon. He gets interned 
at the end of the war in a in a in a big estate in England, the Farm Hall estate, and the British bug this estate. So they have listening devices, and a bunch of German physicists are put there. And basically, till the end of the war, they're having conversations. Meanwhile, the British are listening to everything they're saying. And so through that, the US and the British are able to determine that the Germans didn't really have too advanced of an atomic bomb project, uh, certainly not one that was going to be viable by the end of the war. Um, and so that's that's what happened to Warner. That's what happens to Warner Heisenberg toward the end of the war. He gets captured and interned in this estate with these other British physicists or uh, German physicists. Yeah, I, I don't know how popular knowledge Operation Paperclip was during that era when we were racing the Russians to the moon. But I do wonder if people had realized at a popular level, if they didn't, if that would have changed their perspective of the of the NASA space program and what was going on there. Because you have you know all these German scientists who were physicists, whatever, that are helping helping us beat the Russians. And it's like, wait, 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 wait. They just we were just just fighting them guys not too long yeah. ago. Yeah, the the main engineer who's working on the Saturn V rocket. This is the, the who designed this rocket. He's this is the rocket that takes Americans to the moon. Is Werner von Braun? He's this German technician, you know, during World War II, who is you know with Germany. Uh, he gets captured under this Operation Paperclip and taken. Um, just to try to empathize, to put myself in the position of the Americans who were capturing these German physicists and technicians and bringing them over. They were kind of thinking in a binary. It wasn't that either we capture these Germans and we use their knowledge and get their knowledge or we kind of let them go. It's either we get this knowledge or the Soviets get this knowledge. If we don't take these Germans, then the Soviets are going to take these Germans and they're quickly becoming our enemy in the Cold War. Therefore, we better get to them first. So that's that's, that's kind of the binary thinking that was kind of ruling how these people were uh, approaching these issues. Mm. What are some of the other technologies that they were working on that we haven't discussed we talked about bat bombs glowing foxes um cyanide pills or some other things that was going on yeah there were you know some of the most interesting things are the most simple things usually the most useful things are just the simplest ones so there was one um one thing the r&d branch comes up with is this um these spikes that you could throw on the ground and no matter which way you threw it, it would always point upwards so that you could throw it on a road and it would spike tires and pop the, pop the tires. <laughs> so, you know, it's a really just a piece of metal basically, but it always would point upwards. And so you could always pop tires. There's another one that's developed called the dog drag. The dog drag is um, kind of this sack of smelly material and you could trail it behind you while you're walking, and it would remove your scent from the surroundings. Therefore, if somebody's chasing you, you could uh, attach this dog drag, and if they had dogs, then the idea was that at least that the dogs wouldn't be able to follow where your scent is going. So those are a couple <laughs> technologies that are developed. Some other ones are like silenced weapons, so a silenced flashless 22, you know, uh, pistol, a uh, silenced machine gun, not quite silenced, but it People said that it sounded like a typewriter, so you know the the sound was reduced quite a bit. Um, there were there were um, like message chambers. This was especially useful for secret agents, undercover agents. So a message chamber would be something like you would drill a hole into a pencil and you could roll up a message really tightly and stuff it into the pencil. And nobody would suspect that this pencil, pencil is containing a message. So those were developed in what's called the camouflage division of the R&D branch. Some other message chambers would be um, like a shoe. You could hollow out the sole of a shoe and put some messages in there. One of the most ingenious ones, I think, 
involved lipstick. This was for female agents. You could melt the wax of lipstick and you could put a message in there and just recast the wax around the message. So it looked just like lipstick, but inside of it is a piece of paper that has a message on it. <laughs> yeah, that that's brilliant. I mean, that is absolutely brilliant. <laughs> Man, and, and so I do wonder at this era that you're 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 writing about in the book if it's kind of the golden age of technology because you know now what you just described the hollow shoe i've seen that on spy movies the pencil mm-hmm. thing i've seen i don't know if i've seen the lipstick but but my point is even someone like me could think through oh these are these are a handful of variations which means mm-hmm. that the cia and all these other groups have looked at thousands of other other, other mm-hmm. iterations so this is kind of probably a more fun era to study because this is where it's, I don't know if it all began, is maybe overstatement, but it, the, 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 the early phases of some of this technology being deployed. And so whereas now it's probably this small iterations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it is. I think it is an especially exciting period. One reason is that it's in wartime. So in wartime, these things are actually being deployed into the field. You know, it's one thing if the CIA today comes up with some technology and is sitting on it because, well, if we're not in wartime, it might not necessarily be using it if it does, you know, some particular damage or whatever. But in wartime for the OSS, all these technologies, or at least most of them, are actually going into the field. So you can see how they behave in the field. You can see what the consequences of them are. So that makes for a more exciting story than just developing something and, well, it's just sitting there in case we ever do need it. But yeah, so it's an especially exciting time for these technologies. And another thing, like you mentioned, that I think makes it exciting is that a lot of the simpler technologies are really effective. And so they're fairly easy to understand. You know, it's not quite as easy nowadays to understand some of these technologies. How are you using microwaves in order to bounce off this thing? And, you know, when you get into really kind of the minutia of physics that's being used today to develop certain technologies, it can get really complicated. And so that that might tend to bog down a story a little bit if you have to understand all that minutia in order to follow the story. With the OSS R&D branch, most people are going to be able to understand a lot of these technologies that are being deployed. So that I think that makes for a really good story too. Okay. If you could go back to this period and talk to any of the characters in the story, or maybe someone you, you couldn't find enough to write about and ask them one question and they would answer honestly, um, other than what you said already, who would it be and what would you ask them? Hmm. I think, I mean, since the main character is Stanley Lovell, I think I'd have to talk to Stanley Lovell. You know, I've spent so much time looking through his letters and documents and all kinds of stuff. I, you know, talked to his grandchildren, interviewed them for this. So I feel like I've invested so much time in his story that I would, I'd have to ask him something. What would I want to ask him? You know, I think, I think it would be a question that gets to the heart of the arc of this book that I mentioned earlier is, Can you explain, how do you explain your change of moral attitude from the beginning of the war to the end? I feel like I've laid it out pretty good in the book, but I want to see how he rationalizes his way through it. What was your biggest surprise researching this book? Well, besides, we already mentioned stuff like Operation Fantasia. So, you know, some of these crazy stories are probably (laughs) some of the biggest surprises. Um, You know, what is surprising not just about this book, but about doing history in general, is that there's a lot, a lot of material out there. Before I started this book, I knew that Stanley Lovell had a memoir, and I knew there were probably some documents related to this in the archive somewhere. 
But after this book, it's like, not only is there the memoir, but there's a lot of documents and just sitting there in the archives. So it really has opened my eyes to it. You, th- there's a lot of stuff out there about anything, or hopefully there is. So with this in particular, I found incredible documents that were just waiting for someone to discover them. So it made me more excited to do history because I thought even if I have an inkling of a neat idea, well, there might be a lot of hidden treasure out there that I can find. So that's probably the the most exciting insight I got from this book. Okay. And the book dropped on March 7th. So mm-hmm. this will be out roughly the 12th or something like that. So, anyways, so the book is out on Amazon. We're going to link to that. We're also going to link to your website, um, anywhere else you want us to send people to. Oh, thank you for doing that. Um, probably the, the best place, if anyone wants to keep up with me, is Twitter. I, my name is at John Lyle, J-O-H-N-L-I-S-L-E. I post updates not only about the book, but I think people enjoy. I post updates about a historian's adventures in the archives. So if I find neat documents in the archives, neat pictures or anything like that, I tend to post them on Twitter. So if you're just curious about what a historian does in his everyday life, follow me on Twitter and you can see some of the neat adventures in the archives that I have. Great. We actually had that LinkedIn already. So got that ready to roll. John, thank you so much for your time today and best of luck on the book. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. It was a fun conversation. Hey, you made it to the end of this episode. Thank you so much. Now, I'm going to ask a favor. If you enjoyed it, would you drop a five star somewhere? And if you really enjoyed it, would you consider becoming a subscribing member over at warroommedia.com? Helps keep the show going and ad free. Thank you so much.